Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's nine in the morning on Tuesday the 20th of January 1981 and members of the police task force investigating the Woolworths bombings are at a little weatherboard cottage called Tumbledown Dicks in the town of Huskisson on the New South Wales south coast. When the home's owner, Larry Danielson, comes to the door, he's in for a bit of a surprise. Not just because cops from Operation Softly Softly are here to see him but also because one of them is Detective Sergeant Desmond Johnson, who, as he'll later admit, used to come into Larry's Flick's nightclub on a regular social basis when he was stationed with Manly Police. It's apparently a coincidence that this Detective Sergeant Johnson has just four days ago been assigned to Softly Softly, which is now in Huskisson talking to people who know Greg McHardy, arrested a week ago in scuba gear trying to pick up the $1 million Woolworths ransom off Taronga Park Wharf. Another Detective Sergeant at Larry Danielson's door this morning is Wilfred Tunstall, who's been on the Woolworths case since before the town hall bombing. Detective Sergeant Tunstall introduces himself. It's not clear whether he tells Larry why they're on his doorstep, nor is it clear if Larry betrays anything other than his usual garrulousness as he invites the police, including young Detective Constable Stephen Alcorn, inside to meet his house guests. Everyone chats pleasantly for a while, and then Detective Tunstall says he has other business to attend to, and so takes his leave. Given that Tumbledown Dicks is chockers with guests, Detective Sergeant Johnson asks Larry if he minds coming to Nowra Police Station to answer some questions. Larry says, no problem. 
At the Nowra Cop Shop, Larry offers his old acquaintance a brief recap of the business and marriage failure that brought him to Huskisson and what he's been doing since arriving in April 1980, which amounts to working four months at the Sea Life Lodge, playing a few gigs at local venues and doing a fair bit of relaxing at the beach or with a beer in hand at the Bowls Club or RSL. Detective Johnson gets down to business, asking... Do you recall that fellow who was arrested recently in Sydney Harbour over the Woolworths extortion? He was a diver. Larry says he has heard of the case. Detective Johnson continues, Well, the diving gear he had on was stolen from the dive shop here. Larry says he doesn't know anything about that. There was a break-in that took place at the Sea Life store, but that was a couple of months after he'd left the lodge. Detective Johnson shows him black and white photos of two men suspected of the burglary. Larry says he hasn't seen either of them before. Detective Johnson produces another mugshot and says, have a look at this colour photograph of the fellow arrested in the harbour. Larry replies, I know him. He was stopping with me. That's Greg. Larry explains he met the man in early December via John Horobin and that Greg came to stay with him a month ago. Detective Johnson asks, what's his last name? Larry says, I don't know. He worked for John Horobin. He would know more about him. Detective Johnson asks, Who's John Horobin? Larry explains that John has a scallop diving business and tells Detective Johnson John's address. Detective Johnson now says he wants to know Larry's movements over the past month. The key dates are the 22nd of December, when the ransom letter was delivered to Woolworths head office in Sydney, Christmas Eve, when the bomb exploded in the town hall store, and the 12th of January, when the ransom pickup was in progress. Larry says he's a bit foggy about dates. Summer in Huskisson can be a bit like that, a happy blur. But Larry is in the habit, he says, of going up to Sydney at least once a week in one of the two Ford Falcons he owns, and he usually does this on a Monday. So, best he can remember... On the 22nd of December, which was a Monday, he and Greg McCarty drove up to Sydney. They left around 5.30am to beat the traffic. Larry says he dropped Greg off in the city about 9am. Then he, Larry, went to see an old mate named Dave Brown, to whose place he still had his mail sent. Larry wasn't sure what Greg had been doing that day, maybe seeing relatives or something. As that arranged, they met at the Marble Bar at the Hilton Hotel at 5 o'clock and drove back to Husky, arriving around 9 that night. As for the next date Detective Johnson wants to know about, Larry is on firmer ground. Quote, On Christmas Eve, 24th December 1980, Greg was with me and other people at Huskisson Bowling Club and the RSL most of the day up to midnight. January the 12th? That was another Monday. Larry tells Detective Johnson that he and Greg drove up to Sydney again that day. Greg took with him a blue bag and his diving gear. Larry wasn't sure why. Greg, well, sometimes he wasn't a very talkative bloke. Larry tells Detective Johnson that he dropped Greg at a telephone box at Rockdale, this time around 8am, and they again arranged to meet at the Marble Bar at 3 in the afternoon. Larry got his mail from his mate's place, drove into the city and left his Falcon in a King Street car park. He had a meal in Pitt Street, mooched around for a while and then moseyed to the marble bar. Greg McCarty didn't show up as arranged. Larry had some drinks, went to a bookshop for a while and then drove home. He said he'd left the city about 7.30 and arrived in Huskisson at 11 that night. 
The next morning, Larry tells Detective Johnson, he went and saw John Horriban to ask if he'd heard from their mutual mate. Larry says to Detective Johnson, quote, I told John Horriban about waiting for Greg, but he had not heard anything, and I was pleased to see the back of him. As it turned out, Greg had taken everything he owned, which wasn't much, from tumble-down dicks while leaving his dud land cruiser in Larry's backyard. Larry tells Detective Johnson, quote, I have not heard of him since. I did read of a person being arrested in Sydney in relation to the Woolworths bombing, but I did not relate this with Greg as I never knew his last name. Huskisson, though, is that sort of place. A lot of blokes know each other on a first-name basis, and if you can't even remember that, then a mate, cobble or digger will do. Detective Johnson wants to know if Larry can account for Greg's movements each night he lobbed at Larry's. Larry replies, During the time I knew Greg, there were two or three nights he did not stop at my place, and I did not ask him where he had been, as I assumed he was with a lady. John Horriban would know more about Greg than myself as he worked with him. Larry agrees that a four-page statement recording these answers can be typed up. Detective Constable Alcorn sets about this. But when Larry's asked to sign each page of this statement, he isn't sure he wants to do that. That's because, like he's already told Detective Johnson, he can't be 100% certain of the various dates in question. Detective Johnson says, don't worry about that. If Larry needs to make corrections, he can do it down the track when and if his evidence is required. Larry reluctantly signs each page of the statement. While carbon copies are made, Larry's not given one of these so he can check the dates. Detective Johnson and his young partner drop Larry back to tumble-down dicks. They're off to talk to this John Horriban fella who seems to have been Greg McCarty's main contact for most of the time he was in Huskisson. But all that Detective Johnson's interview with John Horriban will achieve is sending him right back to Larry Danielson's door. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the sixth instalment in the special Forgotten Australia series, The Woolworths Bombings. The next morning, Wednesday the 21st of January, at half past eight, Detective Johnson and Constable Alcorn were back at Tumbledown Dicks, they said, to clear up a few things. As Larry's guests were still there, the police suggested they talk elsewhere. So Larry got in the back of their car and they drove to a nearby caravan park. Detective Johnson had questions about where Larry had been on the 22nd of December. See, yesterday, at John Horriban's place, John's wife Robin had told them that Larry had actually called her from Surfer's Paradise just before Christmas. That didn't fit with what Larry had said about going to Sydney that day with Greg McCarty. Reflecting on this, Larry said, actually, yeah, that might be right. He and Greg had set out for Brisbane at 5am. Larry had been going up to get his marquee because he had a plan to put on a jazz festival. But his car had been playing up, so he and Greg only got as far as surfers. Detective Johnson asked if they'd stopped anywhere for repairs or if they'd stayed anywhere so he might corroborate this story. Larry said they hadn't. He'd managed to fix the vehicle as best he could and he and Greg had camped in the car. Then they'd driven back, arriving in Husky at 2am the next morning, which would have been the 23rd of December. At least Larry thought that was the date. When Detective Johnson asked about Christmas Day, Larry was on Shora ground. He said he'd gone to his brother Alan's place and stayed the night. Then Alan and his family had come down to stay with him until early in the new year. 
During this period, Greg McCarty's girlfriend Karen had also flown down from Townsville for a visit. She'd stayed with them from New Year's Eve for a few days until Larry had driven her back to Sydney Airport for her return to Queensland. So maybe the first time he and Greg had gone to Sydney together was actually the first week of January. But Larry still wasn't sure. Quote, I've always had a bloody diary until 12 months ago and I do not know where I am now. During his interview with Detective Johnson, John Horobin had said that Larry had recently painted a couple of aqua-coloured scuba cylinders. That was significant because the air tanks that Greg had been caught with, the ones stolen from the Sea Life store, had been blue until they'd been painted black. According to John Horobin, Larry had said he was painting the tanks simply because he liked black better than aqua. Of course, from the perspective of the task force, the obvious rationale for such a paint job was to make the tanks harder to see in the water at night, particularly, say, in a situation where police boats were using searchlights to pierce the harbour's surface as they hunted a scuba diver, making off with a $1 million ransom. Detective Johnson said to Larry, quote, I've been told you have painted a pair of air tanks recently with black paint. Is that correct? Larry said, it was. He'd sold both the tanks for a total of $500 to a guy and his wife who frequented the Sea Life Lodge. He'd made this sale, he said, about four weeks ago. Larry told Detective Johnson the man's name so they could follow up. Detective Johnson wanted to know if Larry had any of this black paint left. Larry said he did, and Detective Johnson was welcome to it. Detective Johnson and Constable Alcorn dropped Larry back home. He asked them if they wanted that leftover paint now. They said they'd come back later because they had other witnesses to see. Detective Johnson and Constable Alcorn went back to Larry's place at two that afternoon. He showed them the tin of paint. It was a glossy black, so it didn't match the matte paint from the tanks that Greg had been caught wearing. Now, remarkably, given that Detective Johnson and his young partner were on duty at a crucial part of what was to be the biggest New South Wales police investigation of 1981, these two officers decided to, well, relax for the rest of the Arvo at Larry's place. Ever the good host, Larry cracked a new bottle of Glenfiddich for Detective Johnson, while he and Constable Alcorn contented themselves with vino. Detective Johnson and Constable Alcorn sat back with their drinks. The three men talked and the police listened as Larry played a few of his songs. That this happened wasn't in doubt. Detective Johnson would later admit to having a few drinks. Constable Alcorn would say that Detective Johnson was, quote, slightly affected by alcohol. Larry was to claim that Detective Johnson drank almost the entire bottle of whiskey. As for what they talked about during this two-hour session, Detective Johnson was to say that he and Larry talked about the old times. Presumably this meant when they'd known each other at Flicks in Manly. Constable Alcorn was to say, quote, We spoke about a lot of things. Larry had a very different version. He'd say Detective Johnson became belligerent because he didn't believe that Larry didn't know Greg's surname. He'd say Detective Johnson made threats. He'd say Detective Johnson told him the police knew he was involved in the Woolworths bombing extortion in some minor capacity and that Bob Evans was the real mastermind. He'd say that Detective Johnson claimed there was a hit squad ready to take out Bob with a shotgun. Larry had laughed at this, disbelieving but worried about the threats this detective acquaintance was now making. Particularly when Detective Johnson threatened to plant explosives 
and a gun that had been used in a crime on Larry if Larry didn't tell him everything he knew about the Woolworths bombing. Larry was to claim that when Detective Johnson left Tumbledown Dicks that afternoon, he was so pissed he accidentally set off the siren in his police car and had to be reprimanded by Detective Sergeant Wilfred Tunstall who'd come back to the house presumably to find out where the hell his men were. According to Larry, Detective Sergeant Tunstall told him not to worry about what had gone down that afternoon, that he should just have a beer and forget all about it. For the record, Detective Johnson and Constable Alcorn were both to deny that Detective Johnson had been severely intoxicated and that he'd made any of the alleged threats. For his part, Detective Sergeant Tunstall was to deny that he'd had to reprimand Detective Johnson for boozing and that the man had set off the car siren. Also for the record though, despite on-the-job drinking being endemic in the New South Wales Police at this time, the department's 1981 report to Parliament recorded just one charge against a member for on-duty drunkenness, this out of more than 9,000 serving officers who over that year worked millions and millions of hours. Detective Johnson turned up at Larry's door at 9 the next morning, Thursday the 22nd of January. He said that he and Constable Alcorn were heading back to Sydney. Larry didn't have the phone on at Tumbledown Dicks, so Detective Johnson said, quote, Give me a ring in the morning at nine. I've probably forgotten to ask you something. Detective Johnson handed Larry a piece of paper with three phone numbers written on it. Larry agreed, saying, Right. Detective Johnson and Constable Alcorn got back to Sydney at two that afternoon. They went to the conference room of the task force headquarters in Surrey Hills. While Detective Johnson was to later claim that at this time he believed Larry was only a witness, he was nevertheless at this moment inspired to listen to two tapes that Woolworths point man John Hendry had made of the Mr Bridge phone calls on the 12th of January. Detective Johnson had no doubt what he was hearing, neither did Constable Alcorn. Larry Danielson's voice... That was him as Mr. Bridge on the tape saying the ransom courier should stand outside the Woolworths building opposite Town Hall. That was him on the next tape instructing the courier should drive to the Highway Hotel at Wentworthville. Detective Johnson took his suspicions to Task Force boss Detective Sergeant John Anderson who, while sceptical, authorised that Larry's call the next morning should be recorded. Nine o'clock Thursday morning came without Larry phoning Detective Johnson. So Detective Johnson got on the phone to John Horobin. He asked him to find Larry and ask him to give him a ring. Later that day, Detective Johnson was out when Larry called several times, speaking to various detectives, including Detective Sergeant Tunstall and Detective Sergeant Colin Holden. All of these brief conversations recorded. Finally, Larry called back at 2.30 and got through to Detective Johnson. Detective Johnson didn't caution Larry, nor did he tell him he was being recorded. On the phone, Larry asked Des what was worrying him. Referring to Larry's first trip to Sydney with Greg McCarty, the detective replied, quote, Well, you see, we get mixed up about the day you came up and went back, mate. Referring to the statement that had been taken from him, Larry said, Oh, look, Des, remember that I said I did not want to sign that bloody thing. Detective Johnson said yes, he remembered, but he reassured Larry, quote, there will be no problems. The two men had another phone conversation that afternoon at 10 to 4, which was also recorded. 
Larry again raised his uncertainty about the dates in his statement. And Detective Johnson admitted, quote, We should have given you a copy of that statement so you could have looked at that. Larry said again, That's why I didn't want to sign the bloody thing, mate. Detective Johnson's reply, quote, Oh, no problems, we just have to get it right. To do this, Detective Johnson suggested, Larry should write down various dates if it'd help him try to remember better. But Detective Johnson didn't actually care about getting the dates right, not now that he believed that Larry was involved in the Woolworths bombings. When the calls were done, many of the task force detectives listened to the Mr. Bridge recording and then to these new Larry tapes. They agreed. The voices were the same. To be sure, the task force sent copies of Larry's calls to Sydney University phonetics expert Alex Jones so he could do a proper comparison with the Mr. Bridge tapes. If it really was Larry on these tapes, if he was the mastermind, then he had to suspect the task force was circling him. So why had he phoned Detective Johnson, given this call would almost certainly be recorded? Perhaps it was Larry trying to prove he had nothing to hide. With the tapes being analysed by Alex Jones, police played a waiting game that Friday, and over the weekend, and for most of the next week. Plenty of time for Larry, if he was guilty, to make a run for it, but he stayed put. If he was guilty, why? Perhaps again he was trying to prove he had nothing to hide, and perhaps he suspected he wouldn't get far. While there was no later official mention of a stakeout, a report in the Daily Telegraph would say that undercover detectives had been in Huskisson posing as tourists and fishermen for the past two weeks. So it seems almost certain that Larry was under surveillance after his voice was recognised on the Mr Bridge tapes and he'd made his calls to Detective Johnson. On Tuesday the 27th of January in Sydney, Detective Sergeants John Openshaw and Norman Hazard conducted their second interview with Greg McHardy. According to their accounts, they didn't ask him about Larry Danielson. Instead, Greg revealed that Benny didn't exist, which, given developments with Larry, can't have come as a surprise. Greg also claimed that if he named names, he was as good as dead. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At 7.30 in the morning on Thursday the 29th of January 1981, four detective cars left Sydney's CIB bound for Nowra and Huskisson. At about 10 o'clock, Detective Sergeant Wilfred Tunstall and Detective Graham Stone knocked on the door of Tumbledown Dicks. Larry Danielson answered, saying to Detective Sergeant Tunstall, quote, Good morning, my old China. How are you going? The detective asked if he'd come to Nowra Police Station with them. Larry said sure, but could he finish his bacon and eggs first? Detective Sergeant Tunstall said okay, and he came inside where he met with house guest Ed Doherty. The men chatted, and then it was time for Larry to go. Operation Softly Softly had been true to its name over the past fortnight by operating in secrecy. 
Now it became Operation Loud and Louder, with reporters aware that something big was going on. A press pack tailed the police car that took Larry to the Nowra police station. Larry would claim that at one point reporters slipped behind, so Detective Sergeant Tunstall ordered his driver to pull over to let the media cars catch up. Larry also claimed when they got to Nowra Police Station, Detective Sergeant Tunstall tried to get him to put a blanket over his head, all the better to make him look guilty for the cameras. Larry said he refused, and so he stepped out barefaced into the full glare of publicity. Photographers clicked, news cameras rolled, and a TV helicopter buzzed overhead. The Daily Telegraph and The Australian snapped photos of Larry in his dark jeans and jumper, worn with a medallion, as Detective Sergeant Tunstall escorted him into Nowra Police Station. Inside, Larry was asked if he had any objection to a search being made of his house. Police would have claimed that Larry gave them permission because his friend Ed Doherty was still there and could act as an independent witness as to what was found and what was taken. Ed Doherty had just finished the breakfast dishes when about eight detectives entered. Among them were officers who'd played key roles in the investigation. Detective Senior Constable Frank Kamer, Ransom Courier, and Detective Sergeant Norman Hazard, who'd been in on the interviews with Greg McCarty, were both present. So was Detective Sergeant Colin Holden, who'd made the critical scuba tank breakthrough, and Detective Sergeant Des Johnson and Detective Constable Stephen Alcorn, who'd questioned Larry first formally and then in those less-than-formal, boozy circumstances. Scientific Squad Detective Sergeant John Barber, who'd found the blue insulation tape at the Woolies bomb scene, was also on hand. The search began at about 11.30, with Ed Doherty watching the police collect documents and a notebook and diaries. Officers with metal detectors also scoured the backyard. At 11.05 at Nowra, Detective Sergeant Tunstall began interviewing Larry, while his offsider, Detective Stone, made a record of interview on a typewriter. As this Q&A progressed, detectives began to arrive at the station with evidence collected from Larry's house. Detective Sergeant Tunstall showed Larry a Gregory Street directory and asked him if he recognised it. He said he had one like it at his place. Detective Sergeant Tunstall opened the book. Quote, I draw your attention to map number 16, which includes the Taronga Park Wharf. On the map, in the water beside the pier, someone had drawn a number of black dots. Larry said he didn't know anything about that. Detective Sergeant Tunstall showed him a writing pad and turned to the fifth page. Larry admitted the following was in his handwriting. The first line read, quote, 1. Midnight Special, Newcastle, No Warning. The second line, 2. Daylight Special in Sydney, with warning. The third line began with the number 3, but the rest was blank. Detective Sergeant Tunstall asked what this was. Larry said, Midnight Special is a song. Midnight Special is a song. And Detective Sergeant Tunstall probably did know that. So he asked, quote, What does the rest of that writing refer to? Larry supposedly replied, I don't know. Though later, he would provide an explanation. Another page in the notebook read, quote, Roadmap, torch, razor blade and tape. Larry said this wasn't in his writing. Maybe it was Greg's. On another page was written this, quote, Buena Vista Hotel, Mossman. Below, and most damningly, this, quote, Torch, 
drive downhill towards Taronga Park Ferry Wharf, further in first drive, opening before Old Bayside entrance to Taronga Park, you will find a large white diamond on drive. Down 10 metres, diagonally opposite, you will find drain holes in concrete wall. You will find a two-way handset in one of these pipes, semi-covered by vine. These were the instructions that had been relayed to Frank Kamer, ransom courier, when he'd been at the Buena Vista Hotel. Larry Danielson now allegedly said that these instructions, written in the notebook, also looked like they were in Greg's handwriting. Detective Sergeant Tunstall next showed Larry a telephone contact book. One entry read, Highway Hotel, 631-9226. This was in Larry's handwriting. He explained this by saying that years ago, he'd gone to check out the Highway Hotel as a potential entertainment venue. During the interview, Detective Sergeant Tunstall went to the door and was met by Detective Sergeant John Anderson, who had a tape recorder. Detective Sergeant Tunstall set it down and said to Larry, quote, I would now like you to listen to two tapes which were recorded on the 12th of January 1981 at Woolworths. He played the conversations Mr Bridge had with John Hendry, posing as Sir Eric McClintock, Woolworths chairman. Detective Sergeant Tunstall asked, quote, Do you recognise either voice on those tapes? Larry said he didn't. Detective Sergeant Tunstall asked, Does your voice appear? Another no. Detective Sergeant Tunstall then told Larry that Detective Senior Constable Frank Kamer had identified his and Mr Bridge's voice as being one and the same. What he didn't say was that Detective Johnson had, last Thursday, recorded Larry's two phone calls. Instead, Detective Sergeant Tunstall asked Larry if he'd be prepared to have his voice recorded now. Larry said no. It didn't matter because Operation Softly Softly believed they had everything they needed. And this included another sort of tape. The search of Larry's house had turned up an item that had absolutely delighted scientific squad detective John Barber. Two rolls of blue insulation tape. Just like the tape that had been found in the Woolworths Town Hall men's toilet after the explosion and that police believed were offcuts from the strapped together gelignite bomb. Just like the blue tape that had been found on the underwater scooter discovered on the harbour floor that police believed Greg had intended to use to carry the heavy ransom away. These two rolls of blue insulation tape had been found in a box under a bunk in Larry's spare room. Detective Barber had taken the rolls into evidence and was now driving back to Sydney with them for analysis. Thing was though, Larry wasn't confronted with the tape's existence during his interview, which at 3.20 came to its conclusion when Detective Sergeant Tunstall told him, quote, You'll be charged in connection with these matters. Larry replied, You are kidding. Detective Sergeant Tunstall wasn't kidding. What we've heard about Larry's interrogation is mostly the police version, as later related in court by them under oath. Larry was to give very different accounts, which should be viewed in the context of him being a lifelong teller of tall tales who now had the most urgent motivation to spin stories that had saved his skin. Yet, even taking that into account, it's highly unlikely the detective's official evidence would be as acceptable these days as it was back then. For example, 
While Greg McCarty had been interrogated without a typewritten statement, Larry's Q&A came with such a police record of interview, the one typed up by Detective Graham Stone. This document had one pretty obvious deficiency. Detective Sergeant Tunstall's interview with Larry had started at 5 past 11. They'd stopped for lunch at 5 to 1. So the first Q&A session lasted 110 minutes. The second session started at 1.30 and lasted another 110 minutes, concluding at 3.20 when Detective Sergeant Tunstall told Larry he was going to be charged. So all up Larry was interviewed for 220 minutes, that is 3 hours and 40 minutes. A Forgotten Australia episode that, like this one, clocks in at 45 minutes is based on a script of about 6,500 words. If I was to format the script really tightly, 11-point courier font, single-spaced with minimal paragraph breaks, I might be able to cram it into 10 pages. So how many pages would you expect Larry's interview, duration 220 minutes, to comprise? Try as I might, I can't imagine it being less than 40 pages. Likely, it'd be substantially more. Detective Stone's record of interview clocked in at just four pages. The police would say there were no periods unaccounted for and that there hadn't been any other breaks other than lunch. Detective Stone claimed, quote, Everything that is recorded did in fact happen and nothing other than that occurred. How is that possible? Your guess is as good as mine. But I think it's safe to say that a lot of what was said was not recorded. And this would be one of the defence arguments meant to raise doubts in the minds of the jury members. As we've heard, there were plenty of reporters, photographers and cameramen in Huskisson the day Larry was arrested. Yet the first articles that came out were sketchy, as newspaper editors hurried them onto afternoon front pages. The Sun's headline, Woolies Bomber Hunt, three held, hit the streets while Larry was still being interviewed. The paper reported that an unnamed man and two women had been taken in for questioning. As it had turned out, the two women had been taken in on an unrelated matter. The Daily Mirror claimed an exclusive with its front page headline, Woolies Bomber, Police Swoop. Their report told readers, quote, A second man is being questioned in connection with the Woolworths bombings, following a swoop by carloads of detectives on a small New South Wales town today. By the next morning, Larry's name was revealed, though the Sun's front page headline was Third Man Hunt, and its lead article said detectives were now switching their focus back to Sydney because Benny was still out there. At this stage, Benny's non-existence was yet to be disclosed to the public. The Australian and the Daily Telegraph both ran a photo of Larry being escorted into Nowra Police Station by Detective Sergeant Tunstall. Editors had placed a black bar over Larry's eyes. This was to avoid prejudicing a trial that might depend on witness identification, but it also made Larry look as guilty as all get out. And the Daily Telegraph's headline left little doubt about that either. Quote, How the softly, softly task force got its man. Bomb suspect held. The Australian told readers, quote, Danielson became a star of the local club circuit as an electric accordion player and was often heard practicing late into the night at his home in Curranbean Street. News of Larry's arrest even reached his old mates in PNG via the Post-Courier newspaper there, which reminded readers of the man's career in a story headlined, Singer in Bombing Link. As for Woolworths, 
they'd won the War of Nerves. John Hendry told the press, quote, We have had letters of congratulations from all over Australia, and surprisingly, even a few from overseas. It is wonderful to know we have such support, and we are now back trading at full strength. John Hendry had even better news. Right at the moment police were preparing to swoop on Larry, Woolworths, the company the extortionist bombers allegedly tried to cripple financially in order to enrich themselves, announced its financial results for the year to the 28th of January 1981. Despite all that Christmas chaos, explosions, evacuations, threats and hoaxes, the company had for the first time topped $2 billion in sales. On the late afternoon of the 29th of January, Larry Danielson appeared in the Nowra Court of Petty Sessions on two charges of alleged involvement in the Woolworths extortion. He didn't enter a plea and was remanded in custody. Larry was back in Nowra Court the following Monday. Detective Sergeant Tunstall told the magistrate the accused was set to face further charges. Larry's lawyer argued for bail, saying his client had shown he wasn't a flight risk, saying that though he'd been repeatedly questioned by police in the lead-up to his arrest, he'd made no attempt to flee Huskisson. Bail was denied. Larry was sent to Long Bay Jail's remand centre, where Greg McCarty was also being kept, though the men were in separate sections. Both of the accused were due to appear in court again on the 9th of February. Two days before that, Larry claimed that he saw Greg talking to a man in the yard of the Long Bay Jail Remand Centre. Larry was to say he recognised this bloke as someone he'd previously seen Greg talking to at the Marble Bar on one of their visits to Sydney and then also outside his house in Huskisson on Sunday the 11th of January, the day before the ransom pickup. Implication being, Larry was innocent and this guy might be the real mastermind. The first chance Larry had to ask Greg about this was on the 9th of February. That was when they were reunited in the back of a police van, taking them to the CIB for further questioning ahead of their court appearance that day. As Larry would tell it, he asked Greg, quote, Who was that man you were talking to? Greg replied, I don't remember. Larry was to claim that Greg, quote, wouldn't give me an answer about who the man was. He told me that there was no way he would be saying anything because his life had been threatened. That day, Greg McCarty also refused to answer any further questions from the police. And for the first time during interview, he was actually represented by a solicitor. Larry also, on legal advice, refused to answer any more of the police's questions. At Central Court, though, Larry saw Detective Sergeant Tunstall and said to him, quote, I want to talk to you. After the hearing, Detective Sergeant Tunstall came down to the cells. He said, Come with me, Larry. Your brother wants to speak to you. According to Larry, as they walked off, Greg McCarty became abusive, shouting, Don't go with him. They will only verbal you. Yet it was a week or more before Detective Sergeant Tunstall came out to Long Bay to see Larry. When he did, Larry told him about the man that Greg had been talking to in the yard and said that he'd seen him before. Detective Sergeant Tunstall didn't believe Larry and would later say that Larry had claimed that his, that is Larry's, life had been threatened by this man via Greg McCarty. So there was no investigation into this mystery figure, if in fact he ever existed. Larry was to say, quote, Nothing was done. 
I imagined that I would be shown photographs and at least have the opportunity to point a head out. This sounds entirely reasonable, until of course you take into account Larry's history of fantasy. Larry Danielson and Greg McCarty languished at Her Majesty's pleasure for six weeks in Long Bay Jail until their committal hearing got started on Thursday the 26th of March 1981 at the Sydney Central Court of Petty Sessions. They were both charged with conspiring to demand money with menaces and by force and for attempting to steal $1 million from Woolworths. Larry was also charged with breaking and entering and stealing relating to the scuba gear theft from the Sea Life store, while Greg was charged with receiving these stolen goods. The first witness was Sir Eric McClintock's secretary, Leonie McKinlay, who told of the Mr Dunmore phone call on Christmas Eve. She said the man's accent had been slightly foreign, but he used good English when he told her the store needed to be clear in 10 minutes. Leone described her escape and the colossal loud bang she heard when the bomb went off five minutes later than had been threatened. It was an explosive start to the proceedings, but the magistrate, Mr Kevin Webb, was to order several lengthy adjournments during the committal hearing, which meant that the 11 sitting days in which 80 witnesses testified would stretch all throughout April. Witnesses included John Hendry, revealing for the first time that he'd been the phone contact who dealt with Mr Dunmore and Mr Bridge for weeks before the ransom rendezvous. Detective Senior Constable Frank Kamer told the court about that day and his certainty that Larry Danielson was the voice of Mr Bridge. Detective Sergeant John Anderson described seeing Greg after his arrest, explained that he'd been wearing stolen diving equipment and that he'd been identified by observation squad detectives as being the man who'd been lurking around the Rose Bay Hotel on the afternoon of the ransom runaround. Detective Sergeant John Anderson also told the court that Greg had claimed he'd bought the tanks from a guy in Huskisson, that he denied being at the Rose Bay Hotel, and that he'd told detectives he was as good as dead if he named names. The court heard eight of the extortion call tapes, including the one in which Greg, allegedly doing an Italian-style accent, had told Woolworths John Hendry, posing as Sir Eric McClintock, that four bombs would go off if Mr Bridge was intercepted. By now, media interest had waned, but alert journalists should have realised that that meant on the 13th of January 1981, Woolies had gone ahead with opening 256 stores knowing there were credible bomb threats, only then to urgently order their evacuation in a statewide operation involving 1,000 police and tens of thousands of staff and shoppers. The court also heard from Detective Sergeant John Openshaw about Greg's arrest and what Greg had supposedly said in his two interrogations about who'd hired him for the ransom pickup with a promise of $100,000. Detective Sergeant Openshaw also told the court that Greg had denied any involvement in the extortion and in the bombings. It was only now that it was publicly revealed that police had learned on the 27th of January that there was no such man as the mysterious Benny. Phonetics expert Alex Jones told the court that the voice on the Mr Bridge tape matched Larry Danielson and that Mr Dunmore's European accent had been faked by Greg McCarty. Meanwhile, a mate of Greg's testified that he'd heard Greg telling jokes in this sort of voice and recognised Greg's voice on one of the Mr Dunmore tapes that police had played for him. In terms of Larry's guilt, the court heard about the written evidence that had been found in his house. 
It was also revealed that Larry had been in Sydney on the 7th of January at the premises of the Dive Trek store in Rushcutters Bay, which very early the next morning had been burgled with an orange underwater scooter stolen. Detective Sergeant Tunstall also recounted his interviews with Larry at Nowra Police, including that when told he was going to be charged, the accused had said, You are kidding. We'll hear more about the evidence in the next instalment covering the criminal trial, but in summary, the police case during the committal hearing was that there was overwhelming evidence that Larry and Greg had conspired to extort Woolworths of $1 million and that they demonstrated their ruthlessness and recklessness by detonating three bombs in stores, including the potentially deadly blast in the town hall outlet that could have killed and maimed dozens. Greg McHardy's defence was that he was just a man for hire who'd had no knowledge of anything before the ransom pickup. Through his lawyer, he'd say he'd been verbaled by the police to make him seem guilty of being in on the Woolworths scheme. As for Larry, well, he'd claim he'd been unlucky to take pity on Greg and give him a room, and that he'd then been stitched up by police in unrecorded interviews and by selective presentation of the evidence. The committal hearing concluded on the 1st of May 1981. The break and enter and stealing charges against Larry were dismissed. Not that the Crown needed these, with Magistrate Webb finding there was sufficient prima facie evidence linking the men to each other and linking them both to the Woolworths extortion and bombings. The Magistrate ordered that Larry and Greg should both stand trial for conspiring to demand money with menaces and by force and for attempting to steal $1 million from Woolworths. If they were found guilty on these serious charges, both might be sentenced to 20 years. The men would be in Long Bay Jail Remand Centre until the trial, which was supposed to take place in the district court's current sitting. While they waited, Larry was visited by and received letters from a few friends, including some who tried to help him establish his movements on the dates in question so he could clear his name. In these early days, Larry would apply for bail again and again be refused. In the months ahead, he'd lodge a dozen or more bail applications only to be rebuffed over and over. The police, in opposing bail on one of these occasions, said Larry was a man of great personal charm who, if allowed to go back to Huskisson, might sweet-talk important witnesses into changing their stories. No doubt about it, Larry was a good storyteller. Maybe when the time came, this seasoned crowd-pleaser would be able to persuade a jury he'd just been in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong mate. Greg McCarty? He didn't have the same way with words. And even if Greg had been God's greatest recipient of the gift of the gab, there was just no possible innocent explanation he could offer for how he'd wound up in the harbour in a scuba suit trying to make off with a $1 million ransom. As sure as the sun set in the west, Greg McHardy was going down for the Woolworths job. Whether as a courier or as a co-conspirator, he'd be serving some serious jail time. So the authorities thought. Greg McHardy had, in 1971, absconded from his duty as a soldier. In 1980, he'd fled Queensland rather than face court on receiving stolen goods charges. Now, Greg McHardy had made up his mind. He might have done the crime, but there was no way in hell he was going to do the time. Greg McHardy 
was going to break out of Long Bay Jail. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part six of the special Forgotten Australia series, The Woolworths Bombings. If you're enjoying the show, I'd love it if you could do me a favour by leaving a rating and or review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Doing this not only lets me know that you're out there, but it also helps the show reach other people. The next instalment of the Woolworths bombings will be released very soon, so make sure you're subscribed to get it as soon as it's out. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, on land that's traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.